0: The Windows operating system is one of the most widely used pieces of software in history. Windows was started before there were any alternatives to a monolithic code base, because this was before the internet was widely used by consumers and by developers in their software engineering process. Networked computers gave rise to web applications and that made software engineers begin to rethink how to build everything. After the web was widely used in software development, software development got reimagined with Agile. Monolithic code bases got broken up into service-oriented architectures. Instead of going to a store to buy a box with software in it, users also were downloading software from the internet, and that software was regularly updated. Software that's regularly updated needs to be regularly tested. Instead of a single round of testing for every round of boxed software that was shipped to a store... Continuous testing and delivery gradually became the norm. The process of releasing and operating software became its own set of engineering challenges. And this was tackled by the operations or sysadmin team at a software company. This made there be two different sets of engineers. Those who were developing the software and those who were operating the software. The incentives of these two types of engineers were not completely aligned. The software developers wanted to build software quickly and release new features, and the operators wanted things to be released more slowly. Because if something broke, the operators, the sysadmins, they were the first line of defense for fixing those problems. These problems between development and operations gave rise to the DevOps movement in which developers and operations started working more closely together and sharing responsibilities. Incentives became more closely aligned, and new types of software was created to facilitate more harmonious relationships between developers and operations. For example, continuous delivery pipelines. Continuous delivery pipelines were a newer kind of software built around the time of a movement towards widespread DevOps. Today, most enterprises are still undergoing a transformation from monolithic software release cycles to continuous delivery. This is often referred to as a DevOps transformation. A DevOps transformation requires the entire organization to reorient itself around faster software release cycles. And this can be a painful process. We've covered it in many past shows in several different case studies. And hearing case studies from these different enterprises can be helpful for figuring out how to reorient your own enterprise. Microsoft is a useful case study in shifting towards DevOps. Windows is perhaps the biggest monolithic code base in history... And the fact that Microsoft could re-architect Windows to be easier to work with should provide some reassurance to other enterprises that are currently undergoing their own migrations. Martin Woodward has been at Microsoft for 13 years, and he joins the show to talk about how software delivery within the company has evolved. We discussed the move from boxed software delivery to delivery via the cloud, and focused on a few specific long-standing products, such as Windows. Windows. Martin has been part of the effort to build Azure DevOps, which is a product that offers similar tools to the ones Microsoft built internally for DevOps as a service. We also talk about the specific difficulties that enterprises often have when moving towards DevOps. Full disclosure, Microsoft is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Martin Woodward. You are a principal group program manager at Microsoft. You're a vice president of the .NET Foundation. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. You've been at Microsoft for 13 years, which is enough time to see a variety of evolutions of the company. When you started there, what was the release process for products? How did products make it from development out to the market?
1: Yeah I joined Microsoft from a startup you know I we had a company we sort of five of my friends doing eclipse tooling believe it or not and we figured hey that'd be a that'd be a safe place to work that microsoft won't you know won't want to buy us but uh they came along and wanted to buy us anyway so that was an early indication that times were changing i think uh, i came from shipping or all- to the web all the time um i was shipping into the eclipse marketplace and you know but doing instant updates kind of thing and when i arrived at microsoft it was still very much uh, this is november 2009 and it's very much still a shrink wrap culture. I'm a program manager. So sort of my job is to ship the right thing at the right time, you know, and you kind of have to figure out what the right thing is and, and when the right time is. But it's a pretty easy job, ship the right thing at the right time. And so part of that involved being the box PM. So being the person and it, that's literally what it was called a box PM. So that kind of says everything you need to know for the product that Microsoft had acquired uh, that it brought into the company so um, i had to go on a training course to learn how to you know make it so i was able to sign off on the hologram that was used for the dvd that the software got burned onto that was printed in costa rica and dublin and the boxes and all that sort of stuff you know do all my ad law courses so i could approve the uh all the text that went on the side of the dvd cover and When we were shipping software, um, you literally, you know, called your release done. You put that into a system, which took a couple of days to sort of move binaries from one place to another. And then landed in costa rica or uh, ireland and they started manufacturing it putting it onto dvds printing them and uh, putting them into boxes and then shipping those boxes to suppliers who then sold them it was and that was very much the culture of the company coming from that kind of mindset which is kind of expensive to fix things you know so you start operating in a mean time between failure is the thing you care about, like you don't want to ship, you know, the thing you ship has to work and and because it's going to be printed on boxes and things. And if you have to have a recall what involves, you know, shredding DVDs and things, then that gets pretty expensive pretty quickly. So um, it's a completely different mindset.
0: So the distribution format informed how the software development process went. And so it made sense to do a waterfall software development process, or would you call it waterfall?
1: Yeah, the most of the company was probably waterfall at that time. Uh, there were pockets of agile. Our team ran in an agile way, you know, and so internally, we were, or we were always potentially shippable. Um, we You know, we would run a lot of dog food builds instantly and things. But Having that mindset of a thing that gets released does lead you down naturally into a waterfall instincts if you don't sort of fight it, and it's more that it's the meantime between failures is the expensive thing, and so you have processes which optimize for not failing rather than in a DevOps world and in you know the modern world, you really are optimizing for how meantime to fix how quickly can you fix issues um rather than the meantime between failures so it's a very different it's a subtly different thing but it leads to very different you know very different results
0: when was the company able to focus its software development processes towards more of a cloud based delivery model and when did that that cloud based delivery model start to inform the development practices so they could move to a place where it was less of a waterfall, less of a shrink-wrapped development model?
1: So let me think. Obviously, Microsoft's a, a big company, and so different parts move at different speeds. I was over in sort of developer tools land, which kind of was you know pushing ahead here, and we were very closely affiliated with... Um, the Azure people and what was sort of the Windows server people and that became the Azure people. So they were obviously a lot more along that side. So this was around November 2009. And, you know, I'd come from a little startup. I wasn't sure. I had like the deal you sign when you join a big company like Microsoft that kind of requires you to stick around for two years if you want to see any of the money. But I was kind of thinking, well, we'll see how it goes. You know, I'm not sure how I'm going to cope joining this massive big company coming from cheeky little startup land. But it's been amazing in that I I kind of joined at just the right time because that was just as that transition was kind of kicking off. So my team was doing agile. We were allowed to stay agile. And then the rest of the group I was doing sort of, you know, started. They'd had Pilot kind of being a bit agile. And then they went full on. We're going to change a whole sort of. 500 people or go over from shipping in a more agile way. Interestingly, the key thing is that it wasn't sort of change, we become more cloud focused, which then means we can become more agile. It was we saw we needed to be agile to be successful, so we changed our business and our business models to allow us to be more agile. So they it, it, it kind of drove, you know, one drives the other, which is interesting.
0: Well, this was 2009, so the, I guess that was right around the same time that the DevOps movement was getting started. Were you reading about DevOps then? Was that information starting to percolate to you?
1: So I was in like the Git space and the Eclipse space. DevOps, not so much as a term. The term then was a lot around like application lifecycle management and things. So I'd come from sort of Agile and TDD. And then the transition from Agile to more DevOps practices, I want to say probably happened for my group, around probably around 2014 because maybe yeah that's when we kind of yeah 2013 around about then because that's when we started running a live service that needed to be up 24 7 you know and and all those sorts of things and we started to need to learn kind of practices for keeping an always running cloud service running and that's that's kind of when i started digging into that space in I had
0: trouble understanding what DevOps represented when I first started covering it because I would just get these different definitions from different people, and it seemed like... Depends on what they're trying to it sell had something often to do. as well.
1: <laughs> but yeah.
0: Yeah, it, well, exactly. So so it seemed to have something to do with Agile. It seemed to have something to do with continuous delivery. It seemed to have something to do with sets of tools. But over time, I think what I've come to understand is it was more like there were new tools, there were newer ways of delivering software... And those were informing a cultural shift. And then the cultural shift would also inform what new tools could be built because the ch- there would be a change in culture. And then people would say, wow, we really would like to do things in this n- in some new way. If only we had a tool for doing that. And then the tool that gave a market opportunity for a tool to come into place. And then the tool would change behavior even more. And then you would have this back and forth. And it's really driven... like really rapid changes in developer productivity... And I imagine you you probably saw this to an acute degree because you were, if you were coming from the Eclipse space, I imagine you were seeing, you had your eye on internal tooling. And I think of Eclipse as, you know, that was certainly a, a development tool that I used a lot back in the day. Well, back in the day as far as, don't go back very far, but the tooling has, like that was, Eclipse was like a cutting edge developer tool back then. Now there's like a bajillion developer tools you can have and Eclipse was was uh, was such a predominant one before, but maybe you could talk about how to internal tooling when you were at microsoft i mean that's you, know, you see the cutting edge of internal tools how did those the, the evolution of tooling inform the movement towards what some people were starting to call devops maybe not in 2009 but 2010 2011 whatever when you whenever you start hearing about it
1: so yeah regarding the devops thing first we we sort of the way i think of it is the people process products is what we say and that's in that's in order of difficulty, you know. But I'll carry on. And then it's it's the iterative, continuous flow of value to your customers. So how do you get value into your customers' hands as quickly as possible and then and keep iterating on that? So you know a continuous flow of value. And the DevOps movement is all about continual improvement, you know, continually getting better. Nobody finishes their DevOps journey. Nobody suddenly is doing DevOps. DevOps is the journey to get, you know, it is a journey to improve at getting this. And so if you're doing DevOps right, what you're doing is you're continuously looking about how to improve and how to improve those processes. And then that's what leads to what you were saying in terms of, you know, you're constantly iterating and then you get faster and faster and faster because it's accelerating. So, and then it's definitely people process products because you know the people are the hardest thing to change and sort of you know the the wetware in there is always the sort of the stickiest bit so you've got to be able to fix the sort of people Um, you've got to change the processes about how those people work and then you've got to you know provide products which support those people um, and those processes and the products is kind of the easy part and kind of you know you can make do with you can make do with current gen of products and then you find yourself building new gens of products you know and you can you you know you buy products off the shelf you can use open source ones you can do whatever you know and assemble those together which i guess is a weird thing to say for a a guy that works in the space that sells these products this tooling you know but that's the easy part but anyway it, it kind of is, you know, it's the people and the processes are the hard part. You just go buy or, use, you know, acquire some tooling from either open source or from, uh, you know, from a company like Microsoft or something. And then, so in terms of how we saw the change, again, it was one of these ones where it kind of, it was iterative in itself so we knew we needed to be fast we knew we needed to ship quicker because if you're trying to predict where the market's going to go in three years time which is what you have to do with box products because they're so expensive to print and then manufacture and ship if you're shipping every two to three years you're trying to predict where the market's going to be in two three years time and and you make so of of that prediction you're going to you know get it right 20 percent of the time and get it wrong 80 percent of the time say but at, a, at a, you know roughly guess if you're able to ship twice that speed, then you're going to, within the same period, within that same two to three years, you're going to have X amount more good features because you've seen what works and then you fix it and you move on, you know, and you you discard what doesn't. And so we very much saw that that, that kind of thing was working. When I joined the company, it would be fair to say, and again, I'm, you know, this is me coming from start land and, you know, not really a Microsoft person at the time, I was fairly horrified at the state of internal tooling. You would think that, uh, you know, you would think Microsoft would have the best internal tooling in the world, which um, hopefully it does now, and it's it's getting there, definitely, you know, it's industry-leading. When I joined, that wasn't the case. It was kind of like a, there's a saying in England, in the UK, the cobbler's child has the worst shoes, so, you know, the shoemaker's children have the worst shoes kind of thing. Um, because they hired a bunch of smart people to do smart things, they were busy working on products and kind of weren't working on the build and tooling that was building those products. And it was very fragmented into different groups inside Microsoft. So there was, uh, you know, you've got, say, like big teams like Windows and Office and, you know, developer division, which is building all dev tools and people like that everybody would have their own build teams and their own tooling teams and their own reporting teams, and they all kind of work differently. And every area kind of had it very, very different ways of working, different sets of tools, different methodologies, different restraints. And if you were trying to move between areas inside the company, it was almost like just starting brand new in a new company. Uh, It was a completely different tooling set. So one of the things we've been doing is kind of driving a couple of metrics, um, kind of like improving, looking at the time it takes for a new hire into engineering. When is there how long does it take for them to get code running in production? And then for a transfer for like somebody else in Microsoft come, how long does it take for them to get up to speed and get code running in production? The goal for a new hire is two business days. That's where we want to get to. Bear in mind when I started, it used to be three years because You know, you would start on a team, and then you would like hit the next ship cycle, depending on so you know up to three years, sort of thing, two to three years, because you had to get some code in there, and then it had to be built, and then it would maybe get into a beta or something. But by the time it shipped, it could be two or three years between release cycles. Yeah, which is very different. Now
0: I can imagine this is really hard to ordain from the top of the company how people are going to develop software because. Microsoft's products span from the pre-internet era to the post-internet era, and so you, if you have a product like Windows or a product like Microsoft Word, you can't necessarily map uh, continuous delivery to those products as easily as something that was born on the web, even so like maybe even something like Skype. So, it, was there difficulty in in establishing like consistent standards for the different teams when you have these radically different constraints around the the testing process and the sensitivity of the infrastructure that you're building and, and just the delivery model of those different pieces of software?
1: The difficulties are mostly, again, you know, we talk people process products. The difficulties are first of all with the people, just getting them to understand, you know, this is how we've always done it. These are the processes we always follow with these tools. Um, getting them to sort of sit back and think about, like, is this is this the best way of doing this? Um, do we need to change our business model to help us sell our products differently? Um, when we first started shipping Windows, the way Windows was shipping was it would landed on your machine, you know. And then when the internet came, we were able to sort of ship ISO images and things. But if you think about an ISO image, that's very—that's a very direct analogue. It's a, literally a direct analogue of the DVD, you know, that they were physically shipping to before. And if you think about a modern internet connected operating system, there's no reason why it all has to ship in one image. You know, why can't you ship, The enough to bootstrap and then download individual components, which is kind of how Windows is moving, you know, and how it's moved in terms of there's a lot more store apps being there, you know, there's a lot more things that get individually updated rather than just being part of the core OS. Um, So yes, but most it was difficult, mostly culturally. And I, I would say that the company is moving at different speeds there depending on the products that they're servicing. So even within a group like the Office group, you know, you've got the people who are building the Office web apps who are literally bleeding edge, you know, JavaScript developers, like right there at the very front of um, you know, what how how to build really deep, complicated web applications. And you've got the people who are building the client side tooling that we all know and use, and then you have the work within the office team to try and have a, you know, um, not completely rewrite everything every time. You know, to have a code base that's kind of shared, and how to do that, and those are long-term architectural things that take many 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 releases to get there and you kind of have to you know you're making baby steps to get there because you're trying to do continuous value trying to continue to flow value to customers you can't just stop and rewrite everything and throw all the old thing away you've got to be making customers lives better every single day
0: Could we go a little deeper on maybe if you have some like a case studies, I don't know, Office or Windows or Minecraft or Bing, any teams that come to mind for how they shifted their development model?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the one I know best is my team, which builds the Azure DevOps tooling and how we kind of shifted from shipping an on-premises product called Team Foundation Server on a DVD, which installed, you know, which people install client side. to then running in the cloud as a bunch of cloud services. and our transition sort of architecturally has gone very much from a it's very much influenced by where we came from but also we still ship the on-prem product um, from and the cloud you know versions from the same code base so if we were cloud native born in the cloud kind of thing then you would be using all the platform as a services from azure and you know from your cloud provider because you get much greater density of compute there. And so you get much greater cost savings. And, you know, it's all about the, the amount of electricity you're burning at the end of the day and how much of that you're, you're turning into real work for your end customers. But because we have a product that ships on-prem as well as the cloud, the most dense unit of deployment we can kind of get to is probably containers. But we still have some services which aren't containerized and are running as VM images, you know, and in, in multiple sort of sharded VM in, images. Um, so... Uh, So that's one transition and then the the kind of the thing we did there and ours was very much an agile transition first, followed by moving to a cloud service and then the sort of learning how to run a service and building that live site mentality. Customers are experiencing in the live site is what is all that matters. And when you're used to shipping box products, it's very easy to think about features and things like that, you know, what's getting checked in. It doesn't matter what's checked in. It matters what what experience that customer is having right now in the world. Um, And building that mentality was probably the biggest shift for our team because we had to learn how to run a service now rather than how to ship a product there's other groups like windows that do do that less you know so they've moved from shipping once every few years to shipping they do ship multiple times per day in terms of the things like the uh, signature updates and store and service updates and then they sort of have a service up that windows now have a servicing update every week and then you know you all know about sort of you know like patch tuesday and things like that and the xbox updates that go out monthly and then every sort of couple of times a year they do these big feature updates like Redstone 3 and things like this and yeah, that's kind of the frequency was the big change from those teams. But from our team, we had to go the next full hog in DevOps and become like learn how to run a live site, which is a, a huge change. An interesting one that a lot of customers we speak to, they already know how to run live services because they're internal IT in, in you know, in, in a lot of companies and a lot of big enterprises and all that sort of stuff. They're used to running services. We really, really weren't. So that was a, a big culture change for us.
0: How did you do that cleanly? Because I've talked to a lot of companies that have they've gone through some. I mean, like that—that's a more, even more complex migration than many of the of the companies I've talked to. Because you're going from this product that has to you, know, you have constraints that you need to run on prem as well as in the cloud, and and you're you're building it for customers and and a lot of the companies I've talked to they they're just talk they're just building like an internal application like a an insurance like they're an insurance company for example and they're trying to move to the cloud you know but they're not selling software to developers you also want to keep your software in a place where it's at least comprehensible enough so that as you said earlier if I'm a new developer and I'm joining Microsoft And I'm working on Azure DevOps, then I need to be able to understand the stack or at least the portion of it that I'm working on in a couple days so that I can ship code very quickly. How do you do a migration like that where you want to keep the product accessible to the users that have been using it for a long time while also updating it in a way that it makes it easier to to ship in the cloud, for example.
1: Yeah, the classic DevOps way of finding the bit that hurts the most and then repeating that until it stops hurting as much and then seeing what bit hurts the most next, you know? It took us... Where are we at now? Well, it's you know as we're recording this, it's the end of September 2018. So go out what, in October 2018 sometime. We've started this journey say 2010. So we've been doing it eight years, and we're a long way from done. So you know continuously getting better. In terms of the the stack, making the stack easier for engineers to understand, there were a few sort of epochs. If you like, that had to come in some a few sea change events. You know, you, there's only so much you can do from continuous iterations. Occasionally, you need, you need like a big a big change. Uh, moving to moving a lot of our engineers over to um, Git as the version control system was a, a a very deliberate decision to make it easier for new engineers coming to our stack to be able to know how to check in code and know how to do a pull request and all those sorts of things, you know? And for a team like Windows, that was a ridiculously technically hard problem. They have, what's the last numbers? It's like 500, over 500 gigasource in about 6,000 repos but well, the big daddy is the windows core repo which is where you know windows as you know it the thing that you look at and you know if you're running on a laptop or whatever the the operating system that's a single repo that's got a 360 gig gear repository at the at the centre of it which is just nuts and anyone that knows git would tell you like trying to do that is just stupid and remember i got drafted in and i was like the f- first person on the ground when we we in you know, the windows team we're like hey we want to join forces and we want a single engineering system across the whole company and we want to base it on you know top of a modern stack and we'd quite like to use git and i'm like you are insane you know like why would you ever think that that's a sensible idea so there was a kind of movement as to, well, maybe we should modularize Windows. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what you need to do if you want to use Git, because there's no way you're going to fit it in one repo. Um, you're going to need to break up this legacy, you know, I'm going to say legacy code, I shouldn't shouldn't call it that. A codebase that has, you know, 25, 30 years of heritage, break that up and turn that, and then you can have manageable repo sizes Turns out that's harder than just fixing Git and making Git work for really big repos, to have mono repos, in terms of a computer science problem. Because, you know, these layers that you know if you don't have the abstractions built in if you don't have these interfaces and contracts built in then trying to modulize things after the fact trying to unpick that hairball of interdependencies is just too hard and too expensive and and requires you to stop work which is no good you know you can't you can't you just have to keep shipping features to customers so we went and we we went and we fixed git if you like we we modified git to be able to scale up to that size and then obviously with git being Git, we then contribute those changes back to the community to make sure everybody else can also scale that big because Regarding open source, it's no good us modifying an open source thing and taking it and then modifying it to make it work really big. If we didn't contribute those changes back to that upstream open source project, then the Git project itself, you know, the open source Git project, would would could diverge in a different route and then we'd be left with our little orphan solution that's different that nobody else uses. And then we're back to how we were before with now a fork of Git rather than, you know, rather than in quotes, real Git. And the whole point of using Git was to make it easy to bring people in from the outside so and to make it easy for people to move between the company so yeah that co- interestingly contributing the changes back to the open source git project was a key requirement of why we were adopting git in the first place so which is cool
0: you know there was a, a show i did a while ago with somebody from the he was a linux kernel maintainer and he was talking about the fact that for example you can't use github to manage linux because the linux kernel is is too big or and i guess the they have their they also have specific collaboration constraints so because collaboration for the way that linux is built is so distinct they have this strange email system that they use to collaborate with each other but anyway, long story short, building an operating system is hard. And, and you have a lot of people and collaborating on it is really difficult. But what were the changes, what were, specifically were the changes that had to be made to Git in order to accommodate building Windows on Git?
1: Yeah, and you're right. Like the Linux codebase base is sort of a 640 mega repo. And then the Azure DevOps code base is a three gig repo. And then, you know, you get up to Windows core, which is like 360 gig. So you, 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 you're jumping up every time you go up an order of magnitude, then, you know, you need you normally need like a complete re-architecture, re-platforming kind of thing. On that Linux thing, I know Linux has its own communication mechanism. Well, Linux does work fine in GitHub as a thing. It's the way that the Linux community sort of communicate their patches and emails and stuff. There's a certain amount of, again, I'm not directly in that community um, as a maintainer or anything, but there's a certain amount of, if you can figure out this process, then kind of you meet the bar to be able to contribute to the kernel, you know, sort of self-selection thing going on there. It's, you know, almost not deliberately not too easy to contribute because then, you know, the quality of contributions is higher. Whereas when we've got open source projects that have a really broad reach, being able to contribute to them is vitally important to us, which is what you know why GitHub, kind of won that space because they invented the pull request and uh, they made that such an easy process for people to be able to contribute to open source projects now and and for maintainers to be able to maintain them, which is, you know, what led to their, a large part, what led to their success, I think. So what did we need to do really to get to the Windows, you know, get to be able to host Windows team? Git's a distributed version control system, which means that, you know, it doesn't require a central server. And... In many ways, we kind of had to break that to get it to work. We kind of had to take the distributed nature out of it. What we did is virtualized the underlying Git repository so that when you do a, a clone, when you get the your source code down, you don't actually get the entire source code and all the history ever down because that would be too big and would never fit. You wouldn't be able to buy a, an SSD big enough to fit that on. So never mind transfer it over network or make it work, you know? So we had to do some changes to be able to virtualize that under the hood and then put those changes into the into, into core Git itself to be able to support that kind of way of working. And that was a thing called, it was called GVFS. I think it's, but then that was confusingly the same as the known virtual file system. So I think they've changed it now to like virtual file system VFS for Git or something. I should check what the open source name is. But that's a, an extension to Git, which kind of the, virtualizes the storage of the underpinnings. But when we did that, that allowed us to do some neat, neat things like we could, so we're taking to some extent the distributed nature out of a DVCS tool, which is, you know, a bit weird, but it still works the same way it works. It downloads the binaries on demand from a central server when it needs to rehydrate the objects. So a bit like you know, sort of how Dropbox and OneDrive and things like that kind of work with these virtual pointers, and then it also allows you to do some caching of those things locally in your in your local office. Um, one of the differences between, say, the Linux project and the Windows team is the Linux kernel is maintained by a disparate group of individual contributors. You know, there's some in pockets, like there's a pocket of them over in Red Hat, and there's a pocket who work actually in Microsoft as well. You know, there's pockets of them, but mostly it's people who are individuals spread across the world. The Windows kernel is maintained by Teams, and they're mostly in Redmond and, you know, a few other places around the world. And in specific buildings within those specific geographical areas. And it actually allows us to cache the copies of those, you know, files that they need local to them. And so you end up with an interesting... Interesting thing, where even though the the Windows to the core Windows team are based in Redmond, and their Azure server which serves their code base, because this is all stored in Azure DevOps, Azure repos, which is in in the you know in Azure, but we deliberately picked the Azure data center closest to them to store their particular you know project, which is like West US or something. So,
0: just to give more architectural color on what you're describing, so if I understand correctly. What you changed in Git to accommodate a giant product like Windows is this virtual file system. So, if I'm a developer, normally I would have my entire code base on my local machine so that I can explore that code base as I want to. And I can click around in it and I can understand the sub modules and the sub sub modules and, and so on. And I can have lots of, lots of, uh, rich metadata in my development environment so that I can, you know, introspect classes and things like that. And the problem with doing that in in a gigantic repo is that you simply cannot fit all of the repo on your machine. And so you build a virtual file system and the virtual file system indexes the metadata or it has it has some metadata files that can tell you the relevant content of those files so that if you actually open the file the only then will it be requested from the server on the fly but it'll seem Uh, transparently like it's on your machine from the beginning, even though it is going over the network and pulling down the file, which can be really painful if you're somebody who's opening lots of different files and you haven't seen the files before. So you have to build probably like systems of caching. And of course, it's really important that you, you know, if you want to cache the entire repo on some data center, that's the closest geographically to, like you said, the Microsoft, the team in Redmond. The office. And which illustrates uh, this really interesting difference between windows and linux where you know to cert you could service those developers by just caching a a piece of the a version of the microsoft windows repo close to them whereas linux people are all over the world so you know caching a version of linux close to everybody maybe a bit more tricky
1: well but that's exactly what git does so there's a couple of yeah the actual problem is slightly harder than what you described is exactly correct. Part of that even a little bit harder because as a developer when when you do a Git clone of your you know your repository from GitHub or Azure Repos or whatever you're not just pulling down your current version of a codebase but you're pulling down every version ever of that codebase. You're pulling down the full history. So again for a team like Windows with 25 years of history that's even worse. You know. So you know the Linux team, and you remember Linus Torvalds was was, you know he wrote Git in a weekend is the story. Didn't quite, but you know what I mean. He was fundamental in the creation of Git, and it works really well for the you know design for what the Linux kernel maintainers needed. And because they're individual contributors working distributed you know remotely, it is they are caching an entire copy of the entire repository and all the history locally on their individual individual machines and that's fundamentally how git worked from day one and that made sense for the linux kernel maintainers because that's exactly how they work that's not how the Windows team works, though, you know, or large enterprise teams. They're, they're, there they have groups of people that are very, you know, tightly geographically coordinated, you know, co-located, sorry. We kind of tweaked the way it was stored to, to enable us to do that. Um, it's a bit slightly clever, in that it? it? has to, we had to do some changes into Git as well, into how it crawled trees and things, and Git would break, you know, because things were like, you, you would hit lots of n factorial problems and stuff. And so we had to change ways certain things were evaluated to support really large trees and I can send I can give you some links for show notes if you want with that dig into some of like the real gory details. It was some fundamental changes to support but is because the teams were very, very differently. I and mean, even things like branches, you know, normally Git would break just breaks if you have more than, say, a couple of thousand branches. And you think, well, who would we need a couple of thousand branches? Well, the Windows team. Let me. I can just go look it up now. The Windows team has got like what seven and a half thousand developers. There you go. Who are coding on those repos? Each person's, you know, doing and they work do trunk-based development mostly. So if you're doing a feature branch and then merging it into master, you've got at least 7,305, you know, 7,500 branches already. And that's just one developers working on one thing and then deleting and remembering to delete their branch instantly. And that's not even having any teams of developers working together before they then merge their thing in. So we had to build some stuff into the server, into Azure Repos to kind of, hide branches by default. So when you clone from Azure Repo, like this is server-side magic we ended up putting in into Azure Repos. So when you clone for WDG code, the Windows code base down, you only get the branches you care about i.e. branches you've created or your team are working on, if you know what I mean, you don't get everybody's branches. So there's a few little neat hacks like that we had to do as well. While I'm hearing the number, I'm just looking at a dashboard here. So you have seven and a half thousand people. In the most recent update of Windows, there were four million commits, so four million changes happened to that Windows code base in the single, you know, what was it, six monthly update? So, which is crazy, isn't it, really? And there were like just the, the build time Alone for that update was yeah 1,200 machine years of build time <laughs> to build all the incremental builds that happened. So doing software at scale is just nuts. It's yeah, it really is. You know, it's quite uh, mind-blowing when you start digging into it. It's amazing it all works, isn't it? It sure is. <laughs> I have Immense gratitude for that. So this is an extreme
0: example that we're talking about, and but it's basically it does illustrate the lengths to which developers are willing to go to get a better development process. And the DevOps movement is all about that. It's all about, as you said, people, process, and products. Yeah, so it's like, it's worth doing this load of work because otherwise you're not going to be nearly as productive as if you make that painful shift. And this is what companies all over the world are realizing and as and at the same time they're moving to the cloud and they're also there's companies like like insurance companies that are going from being an insurance company to being a software company uh, and that shift is difficult so there are all these difficult shifts that are happening and if you're on the azure devops team then you're in a perfect place to see the tooling that needs to be developed to allow these people to work more fluidly. So what does an average enterprise that is making this kind of shift? The average enterprise is not changing git to accommodate windows. No, so the n-
1: nor should you. If you do then you're clearly crazy, you know what I mean? <laughs>
0: right. They're talking about like breaking up their monolith at the insurance company and getting it into the cloud and which is its own set of really difficult challenges but you can solve those in a much more generalized fashion than fixing Git for the Windows team. So what kinds of tooling does that kind of enterprise need?
1: So the key thing I always try and emphasize when I'm talking with customers who, who do real jobs rather than the stuff I have to do is people get hung up on, oh, no, I have to completely like refactor my entire code base to Kubernetes or whatever, you know the latest hotness in developer trends. And then by the time they've completed that migration, like there's another hotness to migrate to, or I need to move everybody over. I need to have trained everybody in agile. You know, they think of it in like big bangs don't the whole point of DevOps is to just be continuously improving. So what is the most pain, what is causing you the most pain right now? What's slowing you down the most in terms of delivering value into customers' hands? And I'll be honest, when I'm talking to a lot of enterprises, like mostly now, people have kind of, kind of got like they've got source control kind of under under control. Which, you know, when we first started, when I'm old enough to remember, you know, when source control was just like zip files backed up, and even for a large team working on the mainframe, you often didn't have source control. You were just using sort of data sets in a certain file structure. That's how old I am, you know. So we've mostly solved that problem now we've mostly through the 2000s figured out continuous integration and unit testing to a certain extent so we can we can be continuously integrating and not not constantly having to fight the the merge debt you know the merge pain um, which was slowing teams down so we've mostly got continuous integration kind of figured out or you know people are frightened of it and they don't like to touch it because it's scary and might break but um but it kind of Works. The next stage is often around deployment, being able to automate how you get your bits from check-in to actually the thing that needs to ship into the customer's hands. And then the next level of pain is getting the things into the customer's hands. You know, so this continuous deployment, continuous delivery, is where is where I'm seeing a lot of people is their primary pain point in terms of improving the flow of value. And again. You you listen to like people like us and you know, chatting away and talking about these massive white like, web scale services and delivering to cloud and blah blah blah. And that, oh, great, that's awesome. And you can kinda of see how that can be done in a continuous delivery model because you're delivering to one point. But the I, I go back to my Eclipse days where I was doing Eclipse updates and, you know, talking to a lot of people who are doing like still doing Windows desktop apps or, you know, line of business applications and things like that 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 aren't even shipping to a website how do they do DevOps and can they do DevOps? And the answer is they definitely can, but they need to make some architectural investments to make it really easy to install for their end users to pick up the latest version of their bits. And get it running on their machine. So look at store applications, or look at things like Squirrel, you know, which is uh, the sort of installer technology that's used behind VS Code or Slack and all those sorts of things. So continuous delivery and so technologies, and so that is things like you know continuous build and release. So Azure Pipelines is our product to help you with that space. But then there's things like Jenkins and Travis and people like that, you know, in terms of doing this continuous integration, continuous build, continuous deployment pipelines, and then you've got your how do I get my thing from there into my customer's hands. So often it's installing it onto a web server. Great. You know, how, how am I going to make sure I can install it onto a web server with zero downtime and those architectural problems? Or how do I get it installed into the customer's hands, you know, how do I publish into the App Store quickly? How do I how do I um, get it, you know, ad- their desktop application updating? So they're the kind of spaces to invest in.
0: So I go to these conferences, and when I'm at the conferences, I always walk around the expo hall because one thing I like about the expo hall is you see the interaction between developers and the products that they're purchasing and also the things that they're not purchasing, and you get a sense for... How the tastes of developers are evolving, and what I've seen at there's you know conferences like uh, like Velocity or the DevOps Enterprise Summit where the DevOps is a big focus. There are all these vendors for things like code hosting and project management boards and dashboards, and then there's the actual deployment systems, and then there's monitoring, and there's all these different things, and then some of the vendors have bundles of them together you can you know you can get a variety of things all in one be
1: in that category kind of thing and
0: right and so it makes for an interesting build versus buy set of decisions because you can build an integrated provider you can or you can you can buy an integrated provider you can stitch together open source tools together with random vendors you can piece together entirely different vendors into one thing how does a developer make these kinds of purchasing decisions or a CIO or a CSO how do they figure out how much integration they want between these different systems and where should the integration points be it's, you know since you were you know heavily involved in the product architecture for Azure DevOps, you must have thought about the purchasing process that this kind of developer wants to go through.
1: Yeah. And there's always a difference between the purchasing process that the developer wants to go through and the one that the CIO wants to kind of mandate and things, which is always fun. The key thing is to, you need to make some bets on sort of technology trends, but equally you don't want to be, you want to be able to hedge your bets. So for instance, Moving your team to Git is it to, to just Git itself is a great bet because now you have lots of vendor choices and now you're gonna have them all competing with you for the best Git hosting experience. And you know that there's going to be lots of innovation there. And so, yay. And those are the sorts of things you want to be doing, you know, in identifying these key areas where I can make a bet on a technology. And you can tell I'm not a salesperson, can't you, Jeff? But anyway, I'm avoiding sort of vendor lock in. I'm giving myself the most choices and the most flexibility. So, you, you know, you do that, and then you've got lots of vendors. Like, the same is happening with sort of. Docker to a certain extent in that everyone's sort of standardized on the Docker, you know, the Docker kind of file format, the Docker container format, but then and moving towards now sort of Kubernetes is this way of managing the swarm of Docker containers, but there's still plenty of competition in that space as well. And you're not getting vendor lock-in. you know, if you have a Docker container, you can move it to any cloud hosted provider and on-prem very, very, very easily, you know. So yeah, that, the way I make it, and that's kind of fed in how we've we've changed the product recently because we've moved from, in the old days, it was very much a sort of suite of software that was built, it was kind of purchased and mandated from the top, thou shalt use. And so that's why sort of we had the suite of, like a suite vet product from a company like Microsoft, you know, here's a turnkey solution, buy this and all your problems are solved, you know, 5,000 people in your company can use it tomorrow and it's all all good. And moving much more to a model that's by the capabilities you want, which is how a cloud is, if you think about it, like development environments naturally reflect the thing that you're developing for. In, when we were building desktop applications and client applications, then, you know, you have the big IDEs, like the Eclipses and the Visual Studios and, you know, like the things before that, you know, they, re- they naturally reflected the thing you were building. In the cloud, the, you, you need a much more distributed heterogeneous model that needs to be spread and needs to be a lot more pluggable. And that's kind of like the, nat- that's cloud native, because that's how the cloud, that's the thing that you're building for is is like that. And so the way you build it is also like that. And so we've very deliberately kind of broken out our product into core bits of functionality that are very, very open and pluggable with other-, other things. So it works great if you want to buy it all from us, awesome, great, and you know, we'll make that super easy and super cheap for people. If you want to use our pipelines product, if you want to use Azure Pipelines to deploy to, to take code from Bitbucket, and deploy it to AWS, then we should work just as well for you there, which is what we've deliberately gone and done. so we have the integrations on both ends and we work with, you know, Amazon for them to build the things that deploy bits to AWS. And, you know, so yes, we have an awesome experience for deploying to Azure, but we also have to have an awesome experience for deploying to AWS and GCP because that's how people buy these tools. They're not going to buy something if it gives them vendor lock-in. So we deliberately build tools that, you know, are, tr- are giving you lots of choices and are e- trying to use open source and industry standard. You know, kind of ways of interchange as much as possible. There.
0: So you're describing this like the the DevOps experience that you want to have is very much like the experience you want to have in a cloud provider. So like in a cloud provider, you log in and there's like five thousand different services that the cloud provider offers, and then you can go into the marketplace. And find a bunch of more services that are offered by a variety of other vendors. Like if you're on... Azure, you can find like Cloudera, you can easily install Cloudera using the marketplace. And then, you know, it's so it's, but you're saying that for DevOps, you kind of want the same thing. You want this buffet of options that you can, you know, you can integrate with easily and it's a kind of a marketplace kind of experience, but you also have centralized, like a standard opinionated ways of doing things that are in accordance with how microsoft sees devops
1: i think that's what most customers want that certainly seems to be from when i talk to them you know they don't want to be locked in but equally they find all the choice quite overwhelming and they'd quite like some opinionated guidance as to what they should go down you know and you know even with the cloud providers like you're looking say you want to you know you go and you're doing your just basic stuff like the cdn you know you can go into azure and get there the azure cdn or you can go to azure and buy akamai or buy you know one of the other cdns or you can go to the other or you can go to aws and buy their cdn that's CDNing stuff that's stored in azure you know it's all there and it should be interchangeable and, and plug and play so you can because the whole point is you want to iterate. You don't want to be throwing stuff away. You want to be iterating rapidly and you want to solve the thing that's most painful for you right now. And if what's not painful, for you, you don't want to have to change things which are working just great for you, you know? So leave them alone until they become the thing that's slowing you down the next time. And just keep incrementally improving, keep incrementally adopting. And you find that these massive improvements, like we... We were talking about Microsoft's delivery at the start of the show, and you know it was like every two or three years kind of thing is when stuff got shipped. We ship seventy eight thousand times a day now. Like there's seventy eight thousand deployments a day come out of Azure pipelines in in Microsoft because that's what we use for Microsoft alone. And that's just madness. But that took us ten years to get here of income you know and, and like the first time we improved, we shipped every six months rather than every three years, you know? And then we shipped every six weeks, then every three weeks, and now multiple times per day. So just slowly make those incremental improvements. Don't feel like it's completely, oh, no, I have to rebuild everything and start from scratch. What's the thing that's causing you most pain right now? Improve that. Repeat is my advice. Uh,
0: just to wrap up, that's a great piece of advice. But do you have any other pieces of advice that, as you know, you're talking to a lot of different Customers. I mean, the thing that I always hear from enterprises that they're having a lot of trouble with is testing around their big ball of mud monolith, for example. So, like, that is a huge inhibitor to getting to continuous delivery because... If you can't test the big ball of mud, then you can't really continuously really release it. And that just becomes a big ball. And that's not really any advice I can uh, I can give. But it's just some, some commonality I've discovered talking to different enterprises. But what advice would you give to these enterprises who are adopting DevOps?
1: Yeah, get started in a little bit is what is the main thing. But you talked about testing there. That's a really interesting one because especially with, like, again, when I had a real job. You're trying to get the business to stop doing business for a day and come and test something and then go back to doing the business again. And that's always a hard sell because they're busy doing business and making the money that pays your wages. So making the architectural changes possible so that you can do things like progressive exposure, you can rapidly fix what's running in production and move towards testing in production. That's why the people are doing that's why the people who are doing more testing in production are fine we're finding them being more successful that's not to say disable testing and just go like deploy everything to production tomorrow because you'll you'll deploy some horrible mistakes you know you need to get there slowly and like incrementally and get there but being able to expose a proportion of your user base to a thing a new thing first is a great baby step being able to Compare, you know, for a proportion of your users, the traffic of the old code, like what results I would have got from the old code, which is what you give the end users who were in production, compare that programmatically with the data that would have come from your new code and see if they get the same answers but if you start investing in those kind of practices and those kind that kind of infrastructure then that allows you to iterate more quickly. That's why investing in unit tests was worthwhile because it allowed you to do continuous integration which allowed you to iterate more quickly and have confidence in doing big, you know, when you do big code refactoring. But if you haven't got the unit tests then you're scared of refactoring. So how do you address that and maybe being able to test code in production or test code, you know, using production traffic is um, a great way forward for you. continuous deployment continuous integration getting getting things into your customers' hands as quickly as possible and then how quickly can you speed up your ramp up your engineers when I bring a new engineer into my company how long does it take them to have code running in customers' hands and focus on it uh, how happy are my engineers um, the more frequently engineers ship, the the happier they are. That's like you know proven in the data from the latest Stack Overflow survey. So, you know um, how happy are your engineers? How happy are your customers? How quickly can you get stuff into customers' hands?
0: Martin Woodward, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. Good speech. Here.
1: Wow.